Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. We're brought to you today by Quip, who not only has toothbrushes, but now gum that's actually good for your teeth and gums. How about that? More on them in just a little bit. Good, bad, and crazy martinis. Uh, Jim, just a couple of housekeeping notes real quickly here. Uh, First of all, I assumed when we were talking about Joe Biden's brother late last week that there was the same brother who was talking to Tony Bobolinsky about plausible deniability. Turns out it's a different brother. So that if you're keeping track of shady Biden brothers, there's more than one to keep track of. Uh, also, uh, not true where you live, true where I live, even though it's uh, virtual learning. Snow day. No virtual classes in my county. I know you guys have to have to tough it out, though. Good luck. Well, for for once, I can give credit to the Fairfax County Public Schools for keeping schools open. Well, we don't really have classes on Monday. It's all kind of like, you know, here's the work you should be catching up on, assignments and stuff like that. They don't actually have interaction with teachers on Monday, but they did go ahead with this. So uh, I guess they decided that kids could handle the long walk from their bed to their computer. (laughs) Excellent. Well, let's talk about some good news. And uh, for the second time in our professional lives, Jim, we could be headed towards a recall of the governor of California. The signatures are getting close to the number needed, assuming they're valid and properly gathered and so forth. But uh, not only is that happening against Gavin Newsom out in California, there are now liberals publicly speaking out against his leadership. L.A. Times, there's an unspoken rule in politics. Don't publicly criticize your party's leader. But more California Democratic lawmakers and allies of Governor Gavin Newsom are beginning to break it as frustration grows nearly a year into the COVID-19 pandemic. Quote, it's like he's putting us out to die, said Sandra Diaz, vice president and political director of SEIU, United Services Workers West, which represents janitors, security personnel and other essential workers who were recently removed from the state's vaccine priority tiers by the Newsom administration. Quote again, it's more important for us as a union to see this get better no matter who that upsets. California Republicans have consistently blasted Newsom's action, but there's at least one Democratic lawmaker speaking out as well. Assemblywoman Laura Friedman said that while the Newsom administration has started to collaborate more frequently with the legislature in recent months, many legislators have been left in the dark regarding the governor's response throughout the pandemic. So, Jim... As long as it's just the other party that is condemning you, your chances of surviving are still pretty darn good. Once the dam starts to break in your own party, that's when things get dicey. Now, there's a lot more lefties than righties in California, so I think the odds are that Newsom still survives the recall. But once the lefties start coming out, uh, if they can come up with a substitute candidate, you never know. Yeah, and let's observe that Newsom keeps giving his opponents all the ammunition they could ever possibly want. Uh, There's obviously the notorious French laundry uh, restaurant gathering in which he insisted, oh, no, it really was outside. But no, really, you're enclosed on three sides. And, you know, it looks ludicrously out of touch. Uh, One of the folks who was there at that lunch meeting was a lobbyist. Um, But I think something that the sort of detail that really was going to stick with people is a couple of weeks ago, actually a couple couple of days ago, uh, where Governor Newsom said they would not release the ICU data for the state that was used to justify the stay at home order because, quote, it would confuse the public, um, which obviously has a lot of state lawmakers up in arms. They said, look, this is a very complex set of measurements that would confuse and potentially mislead the public if they were made public. Now, look. 
you know, you know, either th that's basically saying we you, we cannot check our work. You mm -hmm. cannot verify that our judgments are correct. Um, this is too complicated for you mere peons to understand. Uh, look, if you're going to make big, sweeping, unpopular decisions, then you have to be very clear and very forthright about what your your criteria is, why you're doing it, what you need to see to improve it. And all of this stuff looks like it's being improvised. It's all ad hoc. It's all based on what uh, the political pressures or even the mood of the governor is. It's not surprising. Look, California politics has always been about coalitions and the idea of a couple, you know, lefty members of the uh, Democratic coalition getting upset in and of itself would probably not be enough to get Newsom in trouble. But when you have the right that is there that remains in that state, which is not a very big, big amount, but they're still there, um, is as irate as they are. Enough centrists who are frustrated by the state of things, you know, businesses and folks who just, you know, have no particular um, partisan axe to grind or who aren't particularly conservative, but who just find these regulations onerous and frustrating. And then you throw on this thick layer of arrogance that basically is a refusal to explain and justify these very ad hoc. It's not like the state legislature is doing this. This is all coming from the state, the executive branch of the state government with no discernible accountability. Um, you add all that up. Governor you know, Newsom is making a lot of enemies really fast. And so the idea of a, you know, all of those factions unifying behind somebody else deciding, okay, that person sounds better. You know, that's, there are crazier things have happened. Obviously, Republicans would prefer to have some sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger superstar-like figure who was not seen in a particularly partisan light uh, to appear out of nowhere. I don't think they can necessarily count on that. But the, 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 you know, the, the, the stage is now set for somebody to come along and seize Gavin News, the, the governorship from Gavin Newsom, uh, decreeing his leadership during this pandemic to have been a failure that keeps uh, asking too much sacrifice of Californians and too little um, side effects. I mean, they have some of the strictest mask rules in the country, strictest shutdowns in the country. And the state is still very high in terms of number of deaths, in terms of ICU usage, in terms of hospital, in terms of hospital usage, uh, number of cases, number of deaths. California's up there, and yes, it's a big state. That's part of it. But even when you go down to the per capita numbers, it's still pretty darn bad. So, um, hey, you know what? It couldn't happen to a better governor, Greg. <laughs> Just trying to think which action star, perhaps married to someone who's also famous, uh, could could be our choice this time. I don't know that anybody exactly fits that bill. And honestly, Tom McClintock would have been a better choice than Arnold Schwarzenegger back in 2003. But I don't know that uh, McClintock would have necessarily won that race. But, uh, you know, there still are some righties out there. I could see Governor Pat Sajak. Is Patri Stallone doing anything these days? <laughs> I don't know if he lives in California. I think They have enough a of a rivalry that he might want to just run for governor <laughs> just to outdo Schwarzenegger. Could be. You have to move. I think he's based in Florida, but I could be totally wrong about that. But uh, in any event... Uh, Gavin Newsom finally being called on the carpet, feeling a little heat from his own side, which is uh, definitely good as well. But uh, obviously, we all want to stay healthy. And it's not just uh, keeping our immune system strong and uh, staying away from COVID, but uh, oral health is still very important as well. And we know about brushing. We know about flossing. What about chewing gum? Gum's usually considered not a good thing, but gum is actually something people can chew as a way to relieve stress, curb appetites, and most importantly, freshen breath. But many people don't realize that gum can also be an integral part of a healthy oral care routine, but only if it's the right gum, Jim. Yeah, it was only a few short years ago that Quip reinvented the toothbrush for the modern age. They've done it again, this time for chewing gum. Quip gum can help prevent cavities and freshen breath when chewed for 20 minutes after eating. It is sugar-free and has tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories. Uh, 
The slim travel-ready dispenser, which is available in five colors, metal or plastic, packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time and fits in just about every purse or pocket for when you're on the go. Add a gum refill plan for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. And remember, Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. It is not a substitute for brushing and flossing. We definitely want to stress that. But it is a great support for your oral health. Pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush for adults or kids and refillable floss and more great products that we'll be telling you about how to get in just a moment. In addition to the gum packs, Quip also delivers fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months starting at $5 and shipping is free. Spread good oral health habits and join the over 5 million mouths already using Quip. Get chewing for less than $2 per pack of gum. And if you go to getquip.com martini right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash martini g-e-t-q-u-i-p dot com slash martini quip is the good habits company all right jim one step forward one step back i don't know how it is with uh the covid uh strains that are coming now we've got the vaccines that uh did very well in the trials pfizer and moderna we talked about johnson and johnson and others uh on friday uh, that aren't quite as effective but they're only one shot so that's a little bit better uh, and they seem to be keeping people out of the hospital if they do catch COVID, so that's good. Uh, but now we've got this UK variant. There's also the South African variant. But looking at this UK variant, I swear when we were talking about this weeks ago, the line was it's more contagious but less virulent. So there's a better chance you can get it, but if you do get it, it's not going to be as bad as what people have had before. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. This guy, Michael Osterholm, is a epidemiologist, Uh, And he was on Meet the Press yesterday. Uh, I think he identifies more with the left. But nonetheless, he says we've got to modify the vaccine distribution plan to get as many first round vaccines into people 65 and older, because in the next six weeks to 14 weeks, this UK variant is going to slam the US like a hurricane. The fact is that the surge that is likely to occur with this new variant from England is going to happen in the next six to 14 weeks. And if we see that happen, which my 45 years in the trenches tell us we will, we are going to see something like we have not seen yet in this country. Uh, England, for example, is hospitalizing twice as many people as we ever hospitalized at our highest number. And so we do know that if we look at these first doses, that in fact we can even get higher numbers than you just laid out by the time of the third week after vaccination. So we still want to get two doses in everyone, but I think right right now in advance of this surge, we need to get as many one doses in as many people over 65 as we possibly can to to reduce the uh, serious illness and deaths that are going to occur over the weeks ahead. And Jim, the UK Guardian quotes uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson as saying that the UK strain is now 30% more virulent than what we've already been dealing with. So I I wish they could get the story straight here, uh, but hopefully we can uh, brace for this as best as possible. I know there are some folks responding to the Meet the Press tweet saying this guy's always saying the sky is falling. It's always the worst time. The avalanche is always upon us. But if the numbers are correct here, then we do have something to brace for, but hopefully we're ready for it. Yeah. So let me walk through a few things here. The first is um, a couple of weeks ago when they first said that the UK variant was more uh, contagious, but not more virulent. That wasn't necessarily good news, because if you think about it, 97 percent of people are going to survive this. Uh, So still trying to figure out the percentages on how many people are going to have lingering issues. But if you get it, you have a bad, you feel the equivalent of a bad flu 
and then you recover fully, well then fine. That's, that's an okay turnout. Uh, you have, you know, maybe you missed a few days of uh, work. You had to quarantine for a while. No, that's not, that's not good. It's not pleasant, but that's not the worst case scenario. The really bad one is when it gets to someone who is vulnerable, somebody who's elderly, somebody who's immunocompromised, and that's why we try really hard to keep it out of nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and things like that, unless your name is Ender Cuomo. Um, if you, so the problem is if it spreads faster, then the odds of it getting to somebody who, say, works in a nursing home or works in one of those facilities increases a little bit. So the argument that, oh, it's just more, it's just more contagious, we don't have to worry about it killing as many people, well, there's a problem. If it spreads faster, the odds of it getting to the people who are really vulnerable get better uh, or more likely, and then the odds are we're going to have a higher rate of death. So more contagious, but not more virulent is not necessarily a, a dramatically better situation. But now the question is, based on what they're seeing, some of the preliminary data out of the UK, is whether it is a little bit more deadly or maybe considerably more deadly. You know, 30% is nothing really to sneeze at. I think the, the really dark scenario and I've already been accused of being a doomsayer and being uh, excessively pessimistic about this thing, is that you know, viruses spread until they can't. And they can't when you hit herd immunity. There are two ways to reach herd immunity. Somebody gets it, and then they have develop the antibodies in their body, or they get vaccinated. Well, we're trying to vaccinate, but it's rolling out pretty darn slowly. And you know, the infection rate is uh, you know, slowly creeping up there, but we're nowhere near it. And if it's more contag- the more contagious a virus is, the higher the percentage you need for herd immunity. Based on what they're saying about the uh, UK variant and the South African variant, some people are saying you might have to get all the way up to 85% uh, to reach herd immunity. And it'd be a long, long way before we reach that point. Um, and the other thing is that once you vaccinate, right now, all the vaccines, Pfizer and uh, Moderna and the Johnson & Johnson one and the Novavax that apparently is coming all pretty good, all of them have been tested against what I'm, I'm going to call COVID classic, right? The, the, the basic SARS-CoV-2. Sounds like they work pretty well against the variants, not quite as well, um, but it sounds like they can prevent hospitalizations and deaths. And those are what we really want to avoid. Um, you know, you still get sick. You can live with that. Literally, you can live <laughs> with getting sick. Um, so the the but the the kind of one other aspect I want to jump in here is the uh, observation about the guy who says we want to use a, right now. There are certain states that are holding the second dose in reserve, and if we had an unlimited supply and everybody who wanted a vaccine could get one, and we were not in a race against time against this virus. It would make perfect sense to hold them into reserve. What he's arguing for, and in fact, I understand the Biden administration is arguing for, and more and more folks who are of this mentality of, you know what, we got to get it, you know, as close to herd immunity as we can, as fast as we can. So everything short of just running down the street, jabbing needles into people is the philosophy we need. We need to, you know, don't worry that much about age. Don't worry that much about comor- comorbidity. Just get as many shots into as many people as possible. And don't worry about that second shot. Because if everybody's got one shot, they at least have a better, you know, level of immunity, a better level of surviving this than everything else. You know, mostly we're looking at the United States, Europe, Israel's been doing a bang up job. Uh, China rolled out their vaccine, which I understand works around, you know, just a little bit better than 50-50. The Russia hasn't generated their vaccine. Putin hasn't taken it yet. But I'm sure it's totally safe, everyone. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, like, as long as there are populations out in this world that are not vaccinated or that don't have herd immunity and that don't have that and haven't caught it and have antibodies in them, this virus can just keep jumping from person to person. And when you mutate, it can mutate in one of two directions. It can mutate, become less contagious, 
Well, we're not gonna have to worry about that kind very much. Or it can mutate and become more contagious. And that's the kind we really have to worry about. You know, you don't hear about um, you know, other variants from other parts of the world that became less contagious because they spread less. You're hearing about South Africa and the UK because that's where the versions that are spreading faster and may well be worse. So we are a long way from out of this. And I think the great fear is that you get everybody vaccinated. We finally get this, you know, log jam or, or bottleneck or whatever metaphor you, uh, you prefer worked out. And then you're still at a point where you've got this mutated version that one of the vaccines does not work, uh, work against. Now, so far, the vaccines work against that, but the, muta the, the virus is still out there. It keeps jumping from person to person. And while it keeps reproducing, the odds of a mutation that make it not as vulnerable to the vaccine increase over time. We are in a race against the clock. So not to be mildly apocalyptic or anything, but just to let people know, like we want to get as many of these vaccines into people's arms as possible. And this guy I meet the press, maybe he's a doomsayer. And maybe he's always saying this guy is falling, but there is a certain logic to what he's saying here. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it would be really nice if we could find the 20 million doses that the Biden administration says it can't find. Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave Leave a comment, a review, and subscribe. All right, on to our crazy martini, Jim. And speaking of being sick, uh, let's talk about the Lincoln Project. We talked a couple of weeks ago about John Weaver and the mounting allegations that this guy who had been campaign uh, guru for John McCain, John Huntsman, John Kasich, as we always say, uh, left-leaning Republicans named John who don't really like other Republicans. Uh, then he was a co-founder of the Lincoln Project until... Uh, it turned out that he was propositioning uh, young men, some of age and apparently some not of age. Uh, the Free Beacon uh, had the story. I believe Red State originally broke this story. Uh, and the response from John Weaver was, uh, even though he was married with kids, oh, yeah, turns out I'm gay. You know, the Kevin Spacey, Jim McGreevy excuse when uh, the story finally comes forward. But he says, I never used it to uh, try to promise them jobs in exchange for, you know, uh, illicit activity. Uh, that never happened. Well, uh, when that happened, the Lincoln Project uh, released a very terse statement saying, uh, John's statement speaks for itself. Then the New York Times decided to report on this story. 21 different young men, including one as young as 14, propositioned by John Weaver. And now all of a sudden, the Lincoln Project is acting like there's gambling at Rick's Cafe. They're shocked. Uh, John Weaver, they say, led a secret life that was built on a foundation of deception at every level. He's a predator, a liar, and an abuser. We extend our deepest sympathies to those who were targeted by his deplorable and predatory behavior. We are disgusted and outraged that someone in a position of power and trust would use it for these means. The totality of his deceptions are beyond anything any of us could have imagined, and we are absolutely shocked and sickened by it. Like so many, we have been betrayed and deceived by John Weaver. We are grateful beyond words that at no time was John Weaver in the physical presence of any member of the Lincoln Project, which is a very weird way to end that statement. Uh, George Conway, who's also actively with the Lincoln Project, stepped away briefly. I don't know what his role is there now. He was asked about it by Mika Brzezinski, who you can tell really didn't want to ask him about it. But uh, here's George Conway's non-answer to this today. 
thanks for being on this morning. I'd be remiss uh, not to ask you about uh, the story about John Weaver, who is a founding member of the Lincoln Project, 21 men accusing him of online harassment. Your organization has a pretty clear statement on this kind of harassment, um, but wanted to ask you directly about this issue. Yeah, it's it's terrible and awful and appalling and unfathomable. I, I, I didn't know John very well. I frankly only spoke to him a couple of times on the phone early on in the Lincoln Project. Um, I just, I, I, it's almost, I don't know even know what to say. It's just, it's just terrible. And um, I, 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 it leaves me speechless, frankly. All right. So, Jim, the Lincoln Project has made a habit over the past couple of years of absolutely trying to obliterate anyone uh, who would have come up with any sort of statement or non-answer like this. But now they're the ones on the defensive and so forth. Yes, it's possible to be affiliated with someone and not know what's going on in their personal life. But uh, for those who love to throw the stones like the Lincoln Project, uh, they're in a really weird place right now. I'm surprised to see people bobbling a question, what strikes me as, as simple and basic as this. I do get a bunch of people, you know, can you believe Kevin Williamson wrote that? Yes, I can. Kevin's a you know pretty, pretty opinionated guy. I've never been in a situation where someone's been in a terrible scandal and, you know, um, been asked to account for it or, or ask for a response to it. But the, the response seems right is, I had no idea this person was doing this. That is utterly unacceptable behavior. And we are cutting our ties to this person entirely. That's that's all you really need to say. That's all you really you know, probably should say, uh, unless you did know that there is something uh, unusual or bad or something like that going on. Uh, I'm can't help but have a suspicion. First of all, the the reaction of the Lincoln Project to Red State, and then the reaction of the Lincoln Project to the New York Times indicates that they don't believe they have to respond to uh, accusations or allegations or reports from people who they you know sources they deem to be enemy, enemies or critical or, or not on their side or something like that. The New York Times calling and asking about it legitimizes it and really shouldn't work that way. Um, look, it's, you know, I, does this mean, you know, Steve Schmidt or anybody else knew? No, but on the other hand, it does kind of, uh, you know, you want, it's, it's interesting that these, this, this report has been coming around for a couple of weeks and there's no indication that the Lincoln Project, you know, decided to investigate any of this themselves. I was never a big fan of John Weaver, but I was entirely not a big fan of him for the kind of, you know, uh, you know, anti-Republican, Republican politics from a guy named John that you and I have made fun of on this podcast for quite a few times. No idea something like this was going on. This is appalling. This is an abuse of power. This is the sort of thing that uh, should get you effectively run out of the business. And uh, I don't know. I don't it's like, I it, it is an un. There was always that nagging doubt in the back of our minds that Me Too would go after particularly convenient targets and not go after those who had friends in high places. It is good to see the New York Times holding it accountable and deciding that this was worth digging into and worth talking to the victims. And it's good that people are listening to the victims and taking them seriously now. Um, that said, you can't help but get the feeling that if John Weaver had been a uh, more stridently conservative or more overtly right of center figure, whether the New York Times or certain other sources would have been a little more interested in this a little sooner. But either way, you know, justice delayed is just denied, but it is good to see at least now it's out there and no one will presumably work with John Weaver unless they are, you know, okay with this kind of behavior. 
Yeah, the Lincoln Project would go after a weak statement like that so hard, and especially after George Conway's comment. I mean, Jim, it's it's standard Washington procedure now whenever somebody is uh, a, a liability for you to say, you know, in the end, this guy I co-founded this entire organization with, never really met him, hardly knew him, is just kind of there. Uh, I don't know why you're asking me about this. Yeah, but at one point he said, uh, my only interaction was on the, you know, a couple of phone calls. I mean, they co-byline op-eds. I don't know if this means somebody else writes it and they both agree just to put their names on it. Or, you know, I, you know, I co-wrote a book with Cam Edwards. I know him pretty darn well, right? Like, there's no way I could say, oh, I barely, I only had a few phone conversations. But by the way, just one last note of like observing, like when all the Me Too revelations came out, there were some people like Harvey Weinstein who, uh, uh, apparently, this had been an open secret for years. But look, you don't know what somebody's doing behind closed doors. You don't know what somebody's like in their one-on-one interactions with other people. I don't think I expect George Conway to have perfect uh, awareness of everything that John Weaver's doing. But I do expect that once he finds out about it to say, oh, hell no, that's not something I want to be associated with in any way, shape, or form. I, I don't think it's too much to ask a little bit of anger from the Lincoln Project guys and to say to Weaver, you know, how could you do something like this? We were trying to do something in their minds, which was noble and, and good and all that kind of stuff. To the rest of us, it looks kind of like a grift. Um, but that kind of behavior is unacceptable, you know, in any, in, in any institution. And just one other aspect, uh, thing I'll, I'll add. There was an Atlantic monthly article written by, I think it was, uh, I, I won't mention because I don't remember the, I don't have the article in front of me, but it made a reference to Carl Rove, the uh, George W. Bush uh, strategist, the, the architect, as Bush called him. Got into a fight with Weaver. I think it was back during the Bush-McCain uh, uh, things. And Rove had said Weaver had hit on some young man. And this was reported in the article as an obviously untrue smear. Maybe it wasn't an obviously untrue smear. And clearly it looks like that article did not dig into that allegation. The fact that Carl Rove was telling people this was seen as ipso facto evidence that Carl Rove was a nasty, terrible guy spreading these kinds of rumors about a guy. Um, when in fact, maybe there was some truth to it. And maybe Carl Rope was doing something that uh, more people should have been doing, warning others about predatory behavior and things like that. Anyway, closing thought. Good, good to know the mainstream media is always on the case, huh, Greg? Yes. Only 16 years too late, apparently, at least. Uh, Jim, definitely a weird way to end the podcast today, but that's where we are. See you tomorrow. It's Monday, people. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends at Quip, getquip.com slash martini. Also, please subscribe to our Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and we'll catch you again Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit DanaRadio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.